0: Good morning everyone. Um, today today I'm, I'm a little sad today. This is uh, the last sermon on David. Um, it's been a, a, a quite a journey. It's been fun to do this deep dive with David. Um been fun to be introduced to him and all these lovely reminders of about how our God is so good. Remember when we met David, we were said that, you know, God sees him. God is a, a God who sees the what goes on on the inside. We went through David and we talked about David and Goliath and in that story we said that God prepares us for battle. Um, We met Jonathan, David's best friend, someone who modeled what it meant to follow God, someone who even in his friendship and relationship with David, shows us maybe how God loves us. Then we did a a story on the ark and said God is worthy of our praise, spent two weeks um, journeying with David, Bathsheba, and the fallout from that. And in these last two weeks, we did the census last week, and we're going to talk about a threshing floor in the altar this morning. I think what I've enjoyed most about David is that he is this person who's well-known. He's very fondly remembered in many different cultures and traditions even. He's revered. But I think what I've loved the most about David is that he's perfectly human. You know, he's someone that not only you can relate to good and bad, but he's someone who's wholeheartedly human, but he wholeheartedly loves God. I think this story today is going to show how much David is not just sensitive to the things of God, but how much he loved and revered God. I hope in telling these stories of David, you found a little bit of your own story. Because David's story is our own, and God is always the real hero. This morning, we'll focus on David and the threshing floor, learning that our God and God alone is worthy of our sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you are good. We thank you so much that you're merciful. We thank you so much that you're love. We thank you so much that you're faithful. God, you and you alone are worthy of our sacrifice. Help us to be bold enough to be vulnerable, to surrender all to you. In your holy and precious name, amen. Um, we will be reading from 2 Samuel 24, um, verses 18 to 25. I didn't tell you, so thank you, nice work. <laughs> Oh, I just realized I didn't tell her the passage, but she's awesome. So thank you. Um, 2 Samuel 24, I'll start at verse 18. David and the threshing floor. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David went up, as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arona looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face on the ground. Arona said, "'Why has my lord the king come to his servant?' "'To buy your threshing floor,' David answered, "'so I can build an altar to the lord "'that the plague on the people may be stopped.' Arona said to David, "'Let my lord the king "'take whatever he wishes and offer it up. "'Here are oxen for the burnt offering. "'Here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. "'Your majesty, Arona gives all this to the king.' "'Arona said to him, "'May the lord your God accept you.'" But the king replied to Arona, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. One of the things I love about this, this is actually one of my favorite um, passages in all of Scripture. This is a passage. It's not quite often that, at least for me, that I say, wow, this passage changed my life. This is a passage that changed my life. You know, I loved it so much that I uh, convinced my um, seminary professor to let me write a deep, long picture, a deep, long um, paper on it because I was like, I want to know everything there is about this passage. It's so awesome. So I know a little bit too much about threshing floors. And as a city boy who knows nothing about farming, that was an education. But I think what I love the most about this, this, this whole story is just the significance. There's so many lessons if you read the whole chapter, but even if you just focus on these seven or eight verses, the first one that you get in this story is that David sinned and he sinned greatly, but God forgives graciously. That no matter how big David's sin was, God forgave him graciously. The other one we learned, and kind of we've seen this in the life of David time and time again, is that yes, we're forgiven. Yes, God is gracious, but our sin has consequences. In this story, because of an action, because of a sin that David did, because of his sin of pride, because of his sin of self-reliance, because of his sin of being self-seeking, over 70,000 people were affected. 70,000 people. So there's great, great consequences. But I also love that in this story is that the minute that David asks for forgiveness, God forgives him. And even more than that, God says, David, get up. Get up from your knees. We got work to do. And even though David was crying out for forgiveness, God says, David, you're forgiven. Now I need you to do work. And God brings David to being an intercessor for the people. So David goes from this self-seeking, proud, arrogant king to now the intercessor of his people. David goes from worrying about David and being king and mighty to now being the king that God wants. And I think what I love about this story is simply this. It comes at the end of David's life. I love seeing kids in here this morning. I love seeing the youth with us this morning. But this story is a reminder that it doesn't matter if you're 7 or 72. If you take your eyes off of Jesus, you will fall. This story is a reminder that it doesn't matter if you just started following Jesus two seconds ago or you've been following him for decades. If you take your eyes off of Jesus, you will fall and you will sin. Yes, God forgives you. But at no point in your life do you get to stop answering, God, how can I serve you today? God, how do I need you today? This happens at the end of David's life. But at the end of his life, he reminds us that when we come to God truly broken, truly contrite, truly repentant, when we come to God and say, God, I've been going the wrong way, but I'm willing to stop the car, turn around, and go the other direction, When we come to God and say, God, I've been walking the wrong way, but I'm going to stop. And even if it's just a little baby step, every single day I'm going to pledge and take a baby step closer to you. God rewards that. Not because he rewards what we've done, but he sees our faith. Broken and contrite repentant hearts are always good to God. I think the reason I love this story is not just because it's significant, but because what it says about our God and what it says about us, it says that even when we sin, grace abounds much more. That should be a relief to your soul this morning, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see sin. He sees his daughter. He sees his son. That when you ask for forgiveness, God's grace will always be bigger than your sin. But it's also this reminder that when we sin, God forgives us, but our actions have consequences. And these consequences can be painful, and these consequences might not even all fall on us, but they're going to fall on the people around us. But even in the midst of those consequences, God still affords us grace. I love this story because it says when God redeems us, he doesn't wait for us to get it right. He doesn't wait for us to, to you know, say, I'm going to spend three weeks praying and meditating and getting ready for God to use me. When God forgives you, it's immediate, and immediately he wants to put you to work. God is not in the business of you thinking you're right before him, before he can use you. God wants to use you right now. And I think what I love about this story is that even though David sinned, God said, when you're redeemed, I'm still going to keep you in my story, and I'm going to use it to get my will done. I love this story because what it says about God, So this is David's last story. This is the the writers of Samuel. This is what they choose to end on. And I love it because Samuel begins with a lady named Hannah, and it's a worship service. And I don't think it's a coincidence that of all the stories to tell about David, they end with this one and a worship service as well. They choose not to, to take David's last words, that God is faithful, so we should be faithful to God. They choose David was a great artist. David was a great musician, a great songwriter. They didn't pick a song of praise. They didn't even take the David saying, yeah, God is so good. He sends people to strengthen me along the way. But they choose this story to remind Israel and God's people that only a king like David, only a man after God's own heart can truly serve. So let's talk about the story. First of all, it comes in the aftermath. David sinned greatly. David was an old king. David was a mighty king. David was a powerful king. To many people in the kingdom, David represented God's favor. David represented God's touch. David represented God for many of the people. But David stopped looking at God, and he started looking at all the different blessings that God had given him, and that's what he wanted to rejoice in. So he counts up all the people that would be willing to put their lives on the line for him. And this is a great, great sin. And God comes to David and David and God says to him, you've sinned against greatly. But what I love about this story is that God somehow gives David choices. You know, I really wish this happened to me as a kid growing up. Like, I really wish this happened. My daughter has, um she's not here, so I can talk about her. It's good. Our five-year-old did a, a bunch of things she's not supposed to do. But she uh, went to her mother this week, and I'm not going to go into what she did. But I just loved it, though, because her answer to her mother was like, so am I getting punishment for three days or four days? And I looked at her deeply in the eye because I was just like, you're so much more brilliant than I was at five. You know, she's like, I will always throw my arms in the mercy of my mother, but I want some choices. God gives David choices, and I think even that is a love of God. God could have said, David, you sinned against me greatly. This is the punishment. This is what's coming. God gives David choices. But the thing about that is that's the only good part about the choices. Every one of these choices are horrible. Three years of famine. How many people would it have affected for a country that's not prepared for famine to the next day have famine for three years? three months of running from his enemies. David is at the end of his life. He's older. He has sons who are fighting for authority, sons who want to take the kingdom. He not only has spent his younger years running from, from um, enemies, he spent some of that running from his own supposed allies and sons. So at 70 or however old David was, now he's going to leave the kingdom at this time of transition. So that's not a good option either, even if it's three months. So David says, I will throw my hands in the hands of God, and he chooses this plague. And the plague is brutal. The angel comes down, and over 70,000 people pass away. But what's fascinating is that the plague is supposed to last for three days. And when David cries out to God, God stops him immediately and stops the plague at the floor of Arona the Jebusite. I think it's interesting that before David goes and offers this offering— the plague has already stopped. David thinks that, hey, you know, I'm gonna be faithful to God. I'm gonna do it because God, this is all fall on me. Let me offer this sacrifice. But the plague has already stopped. God has already shown mercy. God has already relented. The angel has already stopped. But yet God sends Gad the seer. He sends someone that David trusted, someone that David knew, someone who had counseled David for years. And he gives him these instructions to go and build an altar which is a little bit different from us. You know, we come to church and we worship on Sunday morning. We read a passage earlier about being living sacrifices. But what I love about that culture is that they're very experiential. They realize that we as humans sometimes forget. So doing things with our hands might help us remember a little bit more. So they go to the threshing floor, which was interesting because farmers and then people back then who had farmed all these different crops, they had their threshing floor. And what they would do there is they, they, whatever crop they were harvesting, they would want to separate the chaff or the, the husk from around the edible part. And what's interesting is if it's interesting because it's very boring and if that makes any sense so you would be doing this for hours upon hours upon hours just in the middle of nowhere trying to husk your wheat or whatever you were working on so farmers would intentionally try to pick places that are scenic you know if you're going to do something for four hours might as well be in nature and look at some trees right so the threshing floor of arona is significant because what's happening is this plague is all around them but a man's still working i think that's interesting The other thing about Arona is that he was a Jebusite. Jebusites were pre-Israelite citizens. It's a reminder to us that when we form these things called countries, there's people there already. You know, when we put these things called borders, there's people who might have been there already. So the Jebusites were ancient, well, Jerusalem didn't form yet. It was actually called the city of Jebus, which I think is hilarious. I don't know why. But the Jebusites from Jebus were there. David comes in, and David is chosen by God. David has his own manifest destiny, if you will. David is chosen by God to form and and reform this united Israel. But he comes in, he conquers the Jebusites, he makes a law that no one who's considered his enemies can even enter into his presence, right? So not only did he come and take over their land and wipe out a bunch of them, he says, I don't even want to see you. So the Jebusites are there already. David then takes Jebus, which is, you know, the Jebusite capital, and he makes it his own. He calls it Jerusalem, he calls it the city of David. He brings the ark of the covenant there to say to all of Israel, We're now united under the worship of God. But he also builds his palace there. So you can understand how Arona is working in his field. There's a plague all around them, and he looks down the road and the king is coming. The same king who says, I don't even want you in my presence. The same king who might have wiped out tons of your friends and family. The same king who set up a new nation where you know you're an outsider to the nation that you previously were in. So when you go into this passage, a lot of people say, isn't this guy so, you know, humble? Arona's so humble. I think Aroma's humble, but I think he's also terrified. Remember, David doesn't like messengers. David doesn't even like bad news. David is now coming in all his glory to your farm. He's coming with all his men. The Chronicles version says, you know, he had priests and Levites, and he had all the the king's court with him. So you know something's happening. You're just out there, you know, husking your wheat. Is that what you do? I don't even know. That's where my farming ends right there, right? Harvesting. We'll go harvesting your wheat. You know, you're separating the chaff, right, for the edible part, whatever that means, right? And you look up, and here comes David in all his glory, with all of his court, with all of these people walking towards you. But what I love about Arona is that whether it's reverence for David, whether it's fear for David, he does something that's a beautiful reminder to us. David is his king, and he bows down to him. Arona is also incidentally um, a Jebusite. The Jebusites were also related to the Hittites. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And there's two reasons why that's not a coincidence. The first one is that you remember Uriah the Hittite. Remember what we said when we studied Uriah? Isn't it interesting that someone outside the kingdom is more faithful than David himself? And you see that even in Orana here. He's outside the kingdom. He's not even a citizen of Israel, but yet he bows down to the king. He reveres the king. It's not just like, hey, thanks for coming to my farm. He lays down flat on the floor to say, David, welcome. Maybe he's talking to the dirt, so maybe it was a little dirty in his mouth, but you get the picture. He bows down before David. The other thing that we know that Arona was uh, related to the Hittites is this. They then have this interesting conversation that's kind of a negotiation. And Arona's like, David, thanks for coming. You can have everything. And again, a lot of people say that's humility. I think the man is scared. I think when David shows up to your house in all his glory, you say, you can have it all. Whatever you need, I'm here for you. And that's what he does. And this is actually reminiscent of of, of an ancestor of David. Some of you who grew up in church will know the name Abraham. Abraham, when his wife Sarah died, goes into the land of the Hittites to buy a tomb for Sarah. David has an ancestor named Abraham. Uriah, as a Hittite, is also ancestor of the Phoenician people in the same region, right? So when Abraham goes before them, he says, my wife is passed on. I just want to lay her to rest. It's kind of a beautiful passage, actually. And these people know that God's favor is on Abraham. They know that this is the man of God. They know that if I say no to this guy, it could be trouble for me. So they do the same thing that Arona probably learned in his culture from all these stories passed down. They do the same thing to Abraham. Like, Abraham, you want a cave for your wife? Take whatever you need. And Abraham says, no, 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 no. My wife has died. I want to honor her. I will pay fair market value. And they're like, no, 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 you can have it, seriously. And they even elect one of the people among them and said, you, he has a great cave. You should go to him. He will willingly give it to you. And Abraham is like, no, 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 I want to pay for it. And I think what I love about that is that Arona, in submitting to his king, whether it's reverence or fear, he also shows submission to God as well. Because after he offers everything to David, he says, may your God accept your offering. So you come back to David. You have this guy, Arona, who you've come onto his farm. You've interrupted his workday. You're there with all these people, and you're telling him, I need to to build a sacrifice on your threshing floor. And Arona says, you can have it all, David. Everything is yours. It belongs to you. You're my king. You're my king. Don't kill me. You're my king. And he offers it all. And then I have this phrase, this sentence is wrapped inside this story that I said changed my life. And I hope it changes your life at least a little bit. But David says this thing that's beautiful, and I think it gets to the heart of what worship is supposed to be. David looks Arona in the eye and he says, I will not give my God that which costs me nothing. David, in essence, is saying to honor God, I have to give my best and not my excess. And I think for all of us, that should be a wake-up call. And I'm not just talking about money this morning. I'm talking about all of you. If God looks at the heart, that means he cares about your skills, your gifts, your abilities, your history, your story, your hopes, your dreams. Are you giving God all of your best skills? Are you giving God all of your best gifts? Are you giving God all of your best resources? Can you truly stand before God this morning and say, God, I'm giving you all of me, all of my best? Or is it harder to make that answer? Or is it harder to ask that question? Because when you really think about it, you realize, God, I'm only giving you my excess. I'm only giving you that which I don't need. And again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about who you are. I'm talking about who God gifted you to be. I'm talking about who God has called you to be. When you stand before God this morning, are you giving him your excess? Are you giving him your best? Because David says, to honor God, I must give him my best, not my excess. To honor God, I must offer gifts to God, not simply others. It's great to see God's gifting on other people, but if God's called you to do something and you're not doing it, that's not honoring to God. And David recognizes something here. If he goes onto Arona's threshing floor, and if he uses Arona's oxen, and if he uses Arona's um, altar-building things, that's not David's sacrifice. That's Arona's sacrifice. I'm giving you my floor. I'm giving you the animals. I'm giving you the wood. I'm giving everything up. And I think that teaches us something about worship, too. And I'm talking about worship and how we live for God. Are we offering our gifts to God or just appreciating God gifting in other people? Because David seems to say, if I want to honor God, it's not just about me saying, well, you're so gifted, that's beautiful. It's about me saying, God, what have you given me that I can give back for your kingdom glory? And then to honor God. David seems to be that which cost me nothing. I must be obedient to him. The writer of Samuel uses the Hebrew word Allah, which means obedience, but it also means oath, as in I intend to do it. David is saying, I'm coming here to be obedient to not only what God said, but to what God said. I love that because David says to be honoring to God, I must be obedient to God. Love the brethren in Christ. I love that when we summed up our history, I don't know what it'll be for the next 300, 400 years, but for the first 300 years, I love that we said, you know what, the following God is this quest for holiness, how to live and honor Jesus, but it's also a quest of obedience. When you look at God and say, I will not give God that which costs me nothing, when you look at God and when God looks at you, is your life defined by obedience to God or obedience to yourself? David loved God. But he also knows that to honor God, that he's got to take responsibility for his wrongdoing. When he says, I will not give God that which cost me nothing, he's saying, I'll give God my best. I'll offer my gifts to God. I'll be obedient to God. But I will always so say, God, forgive me of my sin. But these consequences, I need to bear them because I caused them. And here's what I think is beautiful about David. That doesn't scare him. It doesn't scare him, not because he wants the consequences. It doesn't scare him because he realizes that if I'm going to get these consequences anyway, I'd rather God be in charge. I'd rather be falling into the arms of God, relying on him. So David says, I will not give my God that which costs me nothing. And he has two offerings here. The first one's a burnt offering, which makes sense. The burnt offering was done as a sign of atonement, as a sign of repentance, as a sign of asking God, God, please forgive me. And something I missed before the deep dive study is that there's also a second offering that David offers here, and it's a fellowship offering. It's salamim, which is kind of related to salam, which is kind of related to shalom, but it's this idea of well-being. So David doesn't just ask God for forgiveness. But Remember David, remember one of the things we said about David, he's called to be a priest? He's called to be a priest. And what do priests do? They connect God with the people. And I love that David, even in this deep, deep time of need, of asking God's forgiveness, he recognizes that worship is not just about me and God, it's about us. So he offers this fellowship offering as if to say, this is not just for well-being and being right with God, this is for all of us being right with God. I want harmony between God and the people. So the, 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 the burnt offering was literally put on the, the pyre, put on the altar, and it burnt up, right? And they believed it was fully consumed, and God consumed it all, and it was for God. The fellowship offering was more like a barbecue, right? Seriously. Like, the, they would burn off the fat, which I don't like chewing fat, but, you know, they would burn off the fat, and they would basically cook the meat. And they would cook the meat, and then they would share it. They would break it down and cut it, and the priest and the people in attendance would have it. So that was the idea of fellowship. And I love that picture because, yes, you ask God for atonement, but it's not just by you and God. So even in this worship service, David, as a priest for his people, comes before God and says, God, we want harmony with you as a people. And they have a barbecue. So there's great fallout from this story. You know, we have David who has sinned and sinned greatly. But how beautiful it is that we have a God who says grace abounds much more. We have growth. We have David who's now in his late, late life, but he's still growing. To me, that's exciting. Now, a lot of people look at me, they know that you're young. I was like, well, I don't feel young, but I'll take it. I'm young. But I think one of the tragedies we do in this life as we get older is we stop reminding ourselves that we need to grow. We always need to grow. We always need to learn. You can always follow God more. You can always trust God more. And if you don't believe that, life will teach you. So David gets to the end of his life, and even at the end of his life, he goes from this selfish self-promoter to the shepherd king he was as a boy. I love that. The first way he comes onto the scene is as a shepherd king who would do anything for the sheep. And in this story, he's a shepherd king who would even die for his sheep, which points us to Jesus, the ultimate shepherd king, who did die for his sheep. This threshing floor is so significant in the story of Judeo-Christianity. It's significant because we believe this is near where Abraham and Isaac happened, when Abraham says, I'll be obedient to God no matter what. It's where the altar is built. It's where Solomon comes along and builds the temple. And after that temple falls down, it's near where Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. So God uses David's sin and says, now that you've given it all over to me, there's still redemption coming. And it's not just personal redemption for David. It's not just personal or or country redemption for Israel. It's redemption for all of us because that land that David bought might have been the place that Jesus died. And the place that Jesus died is the place that you were set free. David loved God. He purchased the land for the temple. And I love this because he doesn't purchase this land because he's great or because he's king, because he's rich. He only gets to purchase this land because he's forgiven. If David had come to Arona and said, hey, I want to buy this land, Arona would have maybe said no or maybe argued with him or maybe they would have been like, my family's been here. Like you took the whole Jerusalem. Can I just have this little parcel? David doesn't come in power, he comes in humility. And when he comes in humility, that's how he's eligible to purchase the land that went to the temple. The thing I love about David the most, though, and I think if you want to think about what it means, if you say after eight weeks, I had all these different stories about man after God's own heart, where does it fit in? I think the best way to answer that is David would always, always throw himself into the hands of God. That's the best place to be. Life's going to throw you some curves. Life's going to happen. Your plans are not going to be what you dreamed of. Your dreams might not come true. Sorry to be a bear of bad news. But if you're willing to say, I'm a child after God's own heart, if you're willing to say, I'm a daughter of the king on high, I'm a son of God, the king, and if you're willing to say that no matter what life throws at me, I will throw myself in the arms of God, then you too can be a child after God's own heart. David submits to God and he's redeemed and God's will is done. But I love that David's final act is a worship service. It's a worship service. It's David saying, my whole life is about chasing after God, so I want to be remembered by this worship service of giving it all to God. So there's lessons we get from this story. There's many lessons, but I want you to hold on to these five. One, God likes it when his servants put their fate and their faith in his hands. So much of our world tells you it's about you. So much of our flesh tells you it's about you. So much of ourselves tell you it's about you. God says, put your faith and my faith in your hands. Put your faith and your faith in God's hands. When you think about the future, don't just make your plans. Ask God to direct the steps. When you make plans for tomorrow, hold them loosely and say, God, at the end of the day, whatever comes to be, let it be honoring to you. God, help me to build your kingdom. Whatever I'm doing, my skills, my gifts, my abilities, I'm going to put them all in your hands because I want to trust you to make your kingdom come, your will be done, and not just to live for me because that's empty. And I'm not just talking about storing up treasures in heaven. That's nice. I've never been to heaven. I don't know what it's like, but I've been in this world. And I know that when we as Christians step up to the plate and we live for God and we make his kingdom come, I know that lives are changed here. I don't just have to dream of heaven to come. We can work for the kingdom today. And I think if we're willing to to put our faith and our faith in God's hands, if we're willing to say, God, I want you to have all of me, not my excess, but my best. I want you to have all of me, not some of my gifts, but all of my gifts. I want you to have all of me. God can do great things. The second one is simply this. God likes it when his followers wait for his words and submit to his commands. In our culture, or maybe if we're honest, it's just being human. We don't like to wait. We want it now. And I love when people say, you know, these millennials, they just want everything right now. It's like, oh, that's new. That's very new to human history. We have never been selfish until the millennials came along. You know, it's just like, oh, and Generation Z, forget about it, you know? It's, it's, it's like the millennials and the, the generation Z invented this, right? We as people don't like to wait, but sometimes it's okay to wait on God. And when you wait on God, you have to get to this third part because God loves it when his people are completely obedient. It's easy to be kind of obedient. It's easy to pick and choose which ones you want to be obedient to. But David reminds us in his entire life, whether or not he's sinning in need and redemption, whether or not he's organizing a praise and worship service, that God wants you to be completely obedient to him. God likes it when his people are faithful, but he always shows himself to be ultimately faithful, good and true. Now, I talked earlier about how in this culture, they did stuff with their hands to help them Remember? I talked about how even in this story, David built an altar, and that altar was there until Solomon built a temple, and that temple was there until it fell, and Jesus came and, and raised, and then Jesus died on the cross, and the cross happened. But we sometimes do so well with our faith, and we keep it in our heads. What are the markers that you need to remember God's faithfulness? What are the things that you need to do to hold on to the fact that God is true, that God is good, that God is faithful? For every single person in this room, it's going to be different. But ask God what you need to hold on to him, and he will provide it. Don't just make your faith in God something you know. Make it something you feel. Make it something you can touch. Don't just say, this is something I believe. Make it something you live. God likes it when his people are faithful. And this last one is simply this. God desires not only to do what's best for his people, he desires to do what's best for all his people. His sovereign plans always work out for good for those who love him. We need to stop being a church, or for God so loves me. We need to get back to be a church, or for God so loves the world. This is a story about David's sin, but it ends with a worship service that other people were invited into. This is a story about David's atonement, but it ends with God saying, all of my children are eligible to come to the feast. We have to get back to what God has called us to be, and that's to be people who are willing to follow him. But this life, this Christianity can never just be about you. And some of us are a little bit more gracious, so we might make it about our family. But God wants you to make it about his family. And his family might be more than the blood that flows in your veins or the love of the people who sleep in your house. God's family is always going to be bigger than you've dreamed of. So what I want you to think about this week is not just how good it is that God has saved you, how good it is that God has redeemed you, but how is God calling you to expand his family? How is God calling you to love his family? How is God calling you to show this world what that love feels like? And if your motivation is treasure in heaven, that's great. Maybe I should have knocked that. That's a good thing. But I think as long as you're on this side of heaven, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you have work to do. And as long as you have work to do, you have people to love. And as long as you have people to love, you have people to introduce to Jesus. God loves it when his people are faithful. Please be faithful to him. I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to close by singing I Surrender All. But as we sing this song this morning, maybe even before we sing this song, maybe let's take a time and just spend a little time in silence. What do you need to surrender to God today? What do you need to say, God, I want you to have all of this? For some of us, it might be easy to come up. For some of us, it might be a little bit hard. But I just want you to spend a couple minutes just praying to God and saying, God, I want to surrender all, or I do surrender all. But what it is that you need to surrender? Because God desires to do what's best for you. That's his love. That's his covenant love for you. But in doing that covenant love, you have to surrender. Let's spend some time in quiet praying. Shout out to the little kids in the room for keeping it silent. Your parents don't believe in you, but I believe in you, Generation Z. You're going to change this world. As we sing this final song, I'd like to invite up the intercessors. I'd like to invite up to any pastors in the room. As we sing this song, as you think about surrender, maybe it's something that came to you now, or maybe you got something else going on in life. I'd like to please invite you to come up and please let us pray for you. Let us pray for you and let us give it to God the King, the one who